Hi, I'm Jason Nias, along with Natalie Wires from Digital River, an e-commerce and payments company dedicated to helping brands go global and grow their revenue. But this isn't about us. This is Commerce Connect, a podcast about people who are creating some of the best e-commerce experiences of our time. Listen on to hear from e-commerce visionaries as they look back on where they started and lessons they've learned that have gotten them where they are today and what they believe is the future of online shopping. Hi, this is Jason Dias with Digital River, and today we're pleased to welcome Evan Wright. Evan is a Director of Growth and Cross-Border at Avalara. In the broadest terms, Avalara takes an incredibly complex tax compliance responsibility and capability and makes it simple. Full disclosure, Digital River and Avalara are partners uh, helping to uh, simplify the world of selling globally. Evan, welcome. Thanks, Jason. We are incredibly excited to be here and, and talk about the, the very fun world of, of tax and cross-border commerce. Fantastic. Well, let's start off. Uh, let's introduce folks to the company. Avalara, Avalara kind of is the standard bearer in tax, but let's start with that. Introduce us to who Avalara is and uh, all of the different things it has to focus on. Absolutely. So Avalara, we've been around since 2004. <clears throat> we were the first cloud-based tax engine. So prior to Avalara, the world of tax was solved through ERPs by updating what they called tax tables, right? So input a rate and you have to manually adjust those rates. So the age of the internet has taken it so you could sell anything anywhere at any time. And with that, you have to be able to manage these crazy tax rules and changes all over the world, specifically in the U.S. Uh, we, it was where we got our start, but we slowly started taking this model of integrating with existing back office systems to help automate the function of tax. And we've slowly grown from the U.S. to Canada, and now we have 15 offices around the world. We handle not only just tax, but we do um, registrations, tax filings. We have a whole suite of services. So at its core, we like to call ourselves a global compliance platform. So helping businesses get registered in different jurisdictions and really taking that burden of handling the taxation and, and being that middleman between the governments and, and really let businesses focus on what they want to do, which is growing their businesses and, and focus on what they're, what they're good at. So at its core, we started in the world of sales tax. We have slowly evolved. I think we are up to now 4,500 employees. Um, so it's been a, it's been a fun ride. My personal story has been, I started with Avalara about six and a half years ago. Um, prior to that, I worked in uh, global logistics, worked for, for Fortune 500 um, freight forwarder, Expeditors International, doing operations, customs compliance. And uh, that industry is, is kind of archaic, Jason. So it, it, it has, it definitely had a green screen, you know, DOS-based systems. And, and so I jumped over into the software world to really kind of help automate tax and, and cross-border trades. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a really fun place to be. And there's a little, it's just ripe for innovation and change. 
I love that you uh, you described Avalara as a global compliance platform, and that's actually the the primary reason that Digital River and Avalara are partnering is really around some of the capabilities required for cross-border commerce. Can you unpack what it means to do cross-border commerce and all of the complexities that brands need to think about as they as they try to sell their goods into other, other territories? Yeah, so the age of the internet has taken um, and the way technology has progressed with platforms like Shopify and Magento that have taken this incredibly complex uh, retail storefront and been able to publicize it around the world. So now as uh, consumers, we expect to push a button thanks to Amazon, right? And expect it just to show up on our doorstep. And this is now happening around the world. So a customer can be located in, in Australia, shopping on a U.S. brand's website and hit that button and they expect that box to show up. There is a lot of complexities that have to happen between that retailer packaging up that order to actually putting it onto a carrier's truck to get onto a ship or a plane to get to Australia to then clear customs and then eventually arrive at that customer's door. So there's a lot of nuances within that supply chain that you have to break down and there's um, regulation in terms of importing into these countries as well. So there's a few different things to, to really hone in on in terms of the complexity of, of cross-border compliance. And one of those is obviously tax. So you have to be aware of what that regime is, if it's a VAT um, tax regime, whether it's in Canada, they have GST and HST. In the US, we call it sales and use tax. So you have to be aware of what those tax regimes are. You have to understand whether or not you have an obligation to collect tax in those in those countries on whether or not you uh, have an obligation to actually get registered and file taxes to those different regimes. So that's number one. Number two is dealing with customs. So not only do you have to worry about um, dealing with the tax, but you have to worry about is there additional tariffs on importing goods into certain jurisdictions? So for example, there is um, over in Europe, and we're all familiar with the craze of Brexit and Brexit is basically the uh, UK leaving the uh, EU. And what they've done is they've said, hey, any digital company, any company that has a e-commerce site selling goods to UK consumers now has an obligation to collect tax. And at that immediate point, you have to be able to present tax on your website in that checkout experience. And you not only need to be aware of the taxes, but you also need to be aware of if you're importing goods into the UK, you have to understand whether or not there is a tariff levied on your, on your product as well. And so historically, we've, we've leaned on our supply chain partners to do that. But what's coming to the forefront with technology is being able to present what we call a true landed cost. So customers aware of the tax, the duty, the shipping, that complete upfront cost, real time and a checkout experience. So unpacking that, Jason, is, is a <laughs> we could go on and on here, but maybe you can help me hone in on specific areas here. Yeah, no, that's that's really great. Um, you really started to, to, to dig into what I was hoping to cover on today's call. There is, I don't know, 15 to 20 things where people have to 
basically craft a really great consumer experience and have to be, there's a lot of hands in the cookie jars and there's a lot of process that has to be in place to really handle that consumer experience uh, the way that a brand would want. Um, you know, so you, you talked about Brexit. Um, let's, let's dig in there a little bit. Why has Brexit, so I'll, I'll share a little bit from, from what I've seen in the market, is brands who've never used the terms cross-border e-commerce suddenly come knocking on your door and our door and others saying, it sounds like I need a cross-border solution. And I personally give a lot of credit to Brexit because it's a top five e-commerce market. Um, now, transactions that used to be domestic or kind of intra-EU now became cross-border. So talk a little bit about some of the surprises brands see when, when now they, they have a cross-border transaction versus a, a domestic onshore one. In terms of like, just to prime the pump a little bit, um, customers getting a, a, a bill or something uh, that says, hey, if you want this product released from customs, it costs X or surprise charges on their credit card or delays, things like that. Can you unpack do it, what happens if you do it wrong and some of the implications on customer experience? Yeah, absolutely. So there has been this legacy uh, cross-border commerce uh, solutions. And those, what I mean by that is we're so used to being able to just, you know, walk down to the post office, say, ship this to wherever it needs to go. And we'll use UK, for example. So they'd ship in the postal system. It would kind of get lost. And there wasn't a lot of scrutiny on these low value, what, what customs considers low value shipments. So that is, you know, what we all know is e-commerce, these goods that are under a certain revenue threshold. So the government, you know, would actually cost them more to process and impose tariffs on it than it would be that they're actually retrieving back from uh, putting that burden of compliance in place. But with this crazy growth that we've seen from cross-border e-commerce and, and just to level set for our listeners, you know, the domestic cross or domestic e-commerce market is plateauing. So it's not growing at the exponential rate. I mean, it still is, but it's not growing at the exponential rate as what we're seeing from cross-border. The numbers from cross-border are staggering. They think it's going to be somewhere in that 3.2, um, you know, in the trillions of dollars it, it is a good way to look at it from over the next five to 10 years. And that is an exorbitant amount of number from what it is today. So as I look at unpacking this, the legacy solutions were, you know, let me go drop this off at the post office. It would clear customs, kind of skirt through undetected. And now governments are putting a lot of scrutiny on those e-commerce packages. You can think Amazon, Alibaba, you know, the big marketplaces that are moving and facilitating and making it so easy to facilitate trade. And so when you used to ship cross-border, you used to put, you know, you're good in the mail and then UPS, FedEx, DHL, whomever the carrier was, would go deliver that product to the customer. And they would say, Mr. Customer, here's your package. But in order for me to give this to you, uh, you will owe me an extra 50 to $100 in, in duties, which is that tariff that's been imposed on that package which as you can imagine, creates kind of a poor experience. And to really uh, visualize this, I'll tell a, tell a good story. So I have a, a colleague of mine, he lives up in Canada and 
he was shopping around at Christmas time, trying to find a GoPro for his kid. His kid really wanted, you know, the GoPro Hero 5, the, the new one. And so he's looking around and he found a really cheap price from a U.S. retailer. So he orders this GoPro. It was like $100 less than any of the Canadian uh, retailers that he was looking at. And UPS shows up on his doorstep with the GoPro package in one hand and the credit card terminal in the other, saying, you owe me an extra $120 in duties in order for me to hand you this GoPro. And his kid is sitting right behind him. So, of course, he pulls out his credit card and hands it over, but he ended up paying more. And what happens is a lot of times customers will reject this order because they don't have to pay that. And they'll say, no, 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 send that back. I'm, I'm going to get a refund from this company. I, you know, I didn't expect to pay these additional fees upon arrival. So it creates a poor customer experience, which translates to that that consumer is never going to come back and shop from your brand again. Perfect example. Now, how do brands solve that? What is the uh, what is the solution to making sure that there's no surprise uh, at the at the delivery? Yeah. So the solution to that is we've seen, especially in my world, I see a lot of clients uh, of Avalara shifting to what they call a delivered duty paid strategy, which at its core, if you boil it down, is basically presenting the customer with the estimated landed costs. So this is what we believe to be the uh, true cost of getting this product from point A to point B and display all of that in the checkout flow as the consumer is, is finalizing their checkout. So that includes obviously product price, estimated amount of tax, uh, estimated amount of duties. If there's any brokerage fees like uh, carrier fees or anything like that, all presented into a checkout so that the customer can make an educated buying decision on, yes, I still want to move forward this package. It then allows them to trust the brand and believe that they're um, able to purchase this without any additional fees. I like to call that, Jason, the Amazon experience, right? It, it really is just having that box show up on your doorstep without any additional fees due upon arrival. Fantastic. And so when you see brands implement something like this, they probably will say, well, this really hurts my conversion rate because now you're telling me that this GoPro, to keep your example, now costs $120 more. Clearly, I'm going to close less carts, um, which is obviously true. But what's your response to them? The consumer is going to pay it anyway, right? At the end of the day, your consumer is going to end up paying it and it's going to affect you know, your brand retention, the, your trustworthiness of a brand experience online. And as you're looking to capitalize in these new markets, there's different ways to present these prices. You can do it as a, you know, you're going to bake it into the product price in the browsing experience so that the consumer doesn't see that change between, you know, when they're browsing to actually when they check out. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to, to bake those fees in, but as a brand, it is imperative that you are at least um, telling that consumer that this is their total all-in price and they don't owe anything additional upon arrival. And what we've seen from that is it, it increases long-term conversion, right? So that, that consumer is going to stay with you and trust you as a brand a lot longer versus that short-term, you know, it didn't convert in this instance because they saw that big 
shift between, hey, you're telling me it was $100 and now I get to my checkout page and it's 250 with taxes and duties. Yeah, G- great answer. I, you know, but you also see benefits around um, returns. They go down dramatically when, when DDP is applied. That's There's true. an alternative option to doing landed costs. Um, the term DAP versus DDP. Can you unpack what those two things are and the difference? Yeah. Um, so just to finish out the other thought though. Oh, sure. Really, at the end of the day, you, you're spot on, right? You're gonna, those costs are gonna come back to bite you with the returns. So if that customer rejects that order and they don't wanna pay that additional $100 in duties, to use the GoPro example, if he said, no, I'm not accepting this GoPro, then you as a brand are now obligated to pay UPS or FedEx to ship that product back and do a whole clearance process back into the US as well. So it does create additional costs within your supply chain that, that need to be accounted for. So there's two, really two shipping, uh, we call them eco terms. Uh, basically who's responsible for paying the government to facilitate that cross-border trade. So they use DDP, which is delivered duties paid, which is the model that we're talking about of you as a brand are saying, Mr. Customer, I will take on the burden of paying the duties and be able to create this experience that just allows the package to show up in your doorstep and you don't owe anything additional. So we have some brands that are eating that that duty costs uh, that you know are just trying to create that really good customer experience. There's a better way to be able to present that within the checkout flow. But at the end of the day, delivered duties paid is the ideal model for, for brands uh, with cross-border commerce. And there's a lot of ways to unpack that, but at its core, DDP equals good. It's a good way to think about it. <laughs> DAP is the other example of, uh, it's called delivered at place, which basically means the duties will be paid by the consumer or the the end um, purchaser of those goods. So in this example, I'll use another story because I think it, it tells it well. So I have a, a colleague who was in charge of moving over to India to open up our India office. And he was really big into nutrition, loved shopping at Whole Foods, you know, loved getting his supplements and, and um, other health health uh foods and so he couldn't find what he was looking for in india and he was shopping around he found a site that would actually ship him some of these supplements that he had come to know and love and so as he's going through this shopping experience he noticed that they didn't present any tax they didn't present any duties and he was like oh this is awesome i don't have to pay anything additional this is great so he goes and orders you know three hundred dollars worth of supplements has it shipped over to india and the cost of the duties, you know, was about 60% of the total product price because of what it was the supplements and the ingredients that were involved. So he had to pay an extra uh, almost $170, $180 in, in tariffs in order to pick up his package. And of course, he's like, no, I'm not going to pay this. This is ridiculous. So he rejects this order. But at the end of the day, DDU or DAP, it's now called. Uh, is basically putting that burden of paying the tariffs and duties on your customer. So they will get sometimes a nice little notice put in their mailbox saying, come on down to the post office and pay your duties. Sometimes it will be more of an email format, like, hey, log on and, and pay your duties online. 
But at the end of the day, it's uh, your customer obligated to pay the tariffs and duties upon arrival. Got it. Well, you, you, uh, I love the example you gave because you talked a lot about, or a little bit about the ingredients in the supplements. And that kind of is a good transition into the harmonized system of, for code classification. Can you describe what harmonized codes are and uh, the level of specificity and their purpose in trying to get a product from the manufacturer to the customer? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a this is a complex subject if you didn't live and breathe in the logistics supply chain space. So harmonization codes or the harmonization tariff schedule, they call it, is essentially a global trade language. And if you boil it down to its simple, simplest form. And really these HS codes are correlated to products. So you know, I don't care whether the sweatshirt I'm wearing is a red, green, or it's extra large or small. At its core, I'm really looking at this sweatshirt is 50% polyester and 50% cotton. And so that translates into an HS code. So these HS codes are what customs uses to understand what is being imported and exported out of the country and able to quickly identify and read okay, this is a sweatshirt or this is a widget or this is a, you know, fill in the blank. And so these codes are really hard to come by because of, uh, it could be multiple factors, right? The feed into it. So it's there, I think in the US alone, there's 10,000 um, harmonization codes that could be applicable bit to products. And the, there's a lot of, um, a lot of struggle for for retailers to go through and actually identify because it is it is more of an art form that's subjective in terms of how you decide it's not a, always a clear path to determine what that hs code is so 200 countries have come together and said or i think it's 193 all the un countries have come together and stated we're going to use this global trade language called the harmonization tariff schedule and these HS codes are going to be what drives the tariff rate. So when you hear about governments, um, you know, administrations put, getting into trade wars, they're fluctuating what that tariff rate is. So they're saying, hey, I'm going to protect the U.S. industry or for steel. Therefore, I'm going to make it really hard or really expensive to import steel into the U.S., so the HS code for steel would remain consistent. It's the actual driving tariff rate behind it that fluctuates. So the way you determine how to actually calculate a tariff is first you need to figure out what the HS code is, and then that will help drive what the actual tariff rate is to be charged. Hopefully that makes sense, Jason. Yep, it does. And how many digits is the harmonized code? So there's a... Uh, universal six digits. So every HS code has this universal six digits that no matter what country you send it into, it will have those same six digits primarily. There are obviously exceptions to every rule, but typically the six digits are universal. And then each country adds on their own flavor of digits onto the end. So this sometimes could be two digits. It sometimes could be six additional, six additional digits on the end. So sometimes when you get down to that six digit level of what we call that universal code, there could be 
four, maybe five different potential 10-digit options to import that sweatshirt into the UK versus importing it into Canada versus Brazil or Australia. And they're all going to be very unique to the country that you want to import to. So what we're seeing in, in terms of um, legislation changes around the globe is countries are starting to get more specific in their requirement that they are forcing retailers to provide at least eight to 10 digit HS codes on their customs declaration to import goods into, into their country. That was what I was going for. So the, um, the more codes you can give, the more clarity the people at customs have and the more that they can make sure they're getting their revenue, the more that they can allow products to move through quickly. And I think this is the next topic I want to get to around export classifications, uh, restrictions, those kinds of things. Can you give some examples around uh, products who are made, say, in, in of down trying to be sold into Canada? Can you talk about some of those those product restriction use cases and, and how a tool like Avalara can prevent companies from selling a product that they shouldn't into a country they shouldn't? Absolutely. So there are um, not only tariffs, right, but there are product, product level restrictions. So I always like to use um, Singapore because I think this one is, is pretty interesting. The fact that chewing gum in Singapore is illegal. So they have put a product level restriction that says you cannot import any gum into Singapore at all. So those, you know, if you as a retailer had no idea about this law, you would import your, your chewing gum into Singapore and it would get held up at the border and it would not be able to clear customs. So these product level restrictions are um, all across the board. You know, we have a product level restriction on importing seashells into the US because a lot of countries like Philip in the Philippines and Indonesia, they manufacture buttons out of seashells. So we have this import restriction on seashells. Into Saudi Arabia, if you add uh, alcohol into your perfume, that is a product level restriction and it is illegal to import into Saudi Arabia. So there are lots of um, interesting trade restrictions. And there, it's not only a black and white like banned or uh, allowed into the country, but there are licenses too. So export licenses, import licenses. So there's a few levels of restrictions. Uh, we, we call them soft restrictions and hard restrictions at Avalara. So we can help identify you as an e-commerce business who wanna be able to enable your brand to sell everywhere and anything you can use a product like Avalara to help understand, is it you know, worth the ROI to be able to import my good into these countries? And if there's an export license that's gonna cost me money every single time I ship this product out, is it really worth for me to turn on that country as a, a potential option for, for consumers? And so Avalara can help fine tune that with you know switches and dials to be able to understand exactly where you're going to get the biggest ROI based upon those product level restrictions. Yep. There are so many laws and rules. It is virtually impossible for any brand to be 100% compliant on all of the laws. And, and another example, tell me if I'm if this is right, but where products are manufactured also 
could play a role, whether they can be allowed to be imported. The example I've heard is a product, uh, say an apparel product manufactured in China is not allowed to be imported into Mexico. I might have that, that wrong, but the same exact product where it's manufactured uh, basically derives whether you can or cannot get that product in the country. Is that an example that's true, Evan, or did I make it up? Um, it, it is true in some in some cases. There are banned restrictions from, from that country manufacturer, but typically what they do is they just impose extremely high tariffs if it's an apparel product coming from China, right? So they have this, you know, 40% 50% tariff just to um, get the market to not pursue that option. So they that's where that country manufacturer in the Philippines or Indonesia or some other country in, in Asia to import those goods in. And they have what they call a certificate of origin. So that certificate of origin is to validate where your product is manufactured. So a lot of cases, you know, that certificate of origin, you bring it in, you add, um, you know, you're bringing in raw materials and then you're actually manufacturing your product in Mexico or other. Then not only from a, a product level restriction makes sense, but also there's what they call these free trade agreements, right? So we have uh, the new NAFTA agreement is called the USMCA. If you can prove that your product is manufactured in the US, Mexico, or Canada, just a, a gives you the ability to have a duty-free, tariff-free uh, movement of that product into the other uh, two countries. There's a plenty of these free trade agreements that we've struck all around the world. So, you know, there's a UK-EU free trade agreement uh, for certain products. So not only do you have to understand, is your product restricted, but is it applicable for free trade agreements as well? So that's another area that Avalara can help out with. Fantastic. Well, we've covered where it's made. We covered what it's made of. Now, another term that comes up a lot is this concept of de minimis value. And so what is it worth? So can you demystify what the minimis value is and uh, how this complexity is managed? Yeah, that's a great, great question, Jason. So de minimis at its core is a essentially a revenue threshold that countries will apply to the value of a good. So meaning if this good exceeds our de minimis, that revenue threshold, then duties are applied. And this de minimis, de minimis threshold changes country to country. So it's not a blanket, you know, worldwide de minimis. For example, US, we have an extremely high de minimis value. So it's $800 to import goods into the U.S. before duties are actually applied. So a good, a value of a good exceeding, and it's it's not a value of a good, it's, it's actually a shipment. So if you put five goods together in one box and it exceeds that $800, then you have to apply the, the duty to that shipment. And so the U.K. is $150, the EU is $150, um, euros. I think the UK is 150 pounds sterling and Australia has a thousand dollar de minimis. So that de minimis value is known to change too. So especially as we're starting to see more scrutiny on these lower value e-commerce shipments, we're, we can start to see what that de minimis 
threshold starts moving down in terms of what countries are looking at in terms to apply tariffs. Yeah, that, that's a great segue. So we talk a little bit about Brexit, how it made a top five e-commerce market across border market. Uh, we talked about um, the rocket ship growth of cross border. You talked a little bit about how individual counties, states, and, and national governments are basically reevaluating their tax programs to try and increase revenue. Um, generally speaking, um, people go where the money is, and the money right now is in cross-border. Can you speak a little bit about some recent law changes or process changes that you guys keep an eye on that people should be aware of? I'm thinking about like the, the digital, I think it was the tax law in July 1st that might have gone live. Uh, that one was a big one. Can you maybe talk about that or others? Yeah. So um, the July 1st one. So there's there's two big ones that happened over in, in Europe. So one is the marketplace, what they call the deem supplier laws. So this has taken the onus of tax collection and, and compliance off of the individual uh, seller on Amazon or eBay or you know, fill in the blank marketplace and put it on the marketplace itself. So that has put a lot of restrictions on, um, you know, who the government is going after. I like to call it the single throat to choke, right? So they're going after these big marketplaces saying that you're liable for all transactions that occur on your platform. The second law that went into effect is what they call the IOS regime. So it, it's a expedited clearance process into the European Union. So IOS is, if you are a foreign importer, you know, the, the previous process was you would have a certain revenue threshold set by that individual country, you know, Germany, 75,000, France, 50,000, et cetera. You would have to, if you exceeded that threshold that you had a requirement to go be registered and file local VAT returns, in those certain countries. And what they've now switched to is, hey, if you sell goods into the European Union, you now have an obligation to collect VAT on every single transaction. There is no revenue threshold requirement anymore. You have to collect VAT. And we'll give you a, an easier way to be able to transact and remit that VAT back to us, but you will have now an obligation to collect VAT. And that is both in the UK as well as in the EU. And so they've created these two um, easier paths to file your VAT back. So one is called IOS. IOS is an import one-stop shop, which essentially means you as a brand can go get registered for IOS and you have one country as your home country that gets designated. And you have, you have to collect that on every transaction to the EU, but you only have to file one return, I think it's um, quarterly, one return quarterly to your home country who then distributes those funds out to the rest of the EU. So it makes it easier to handle compliance, but as a part of this program, you have an obligation to provide HS codes on your label and on your customs declaration. And those HS codes have to be at least eight to 10 digits. You have, an ob you have different um, 
obligations that you have to produce, the higher level of scrutiny in order to be applied for this IOS, which allows your goods to seamlessly clear customs. So you'll get an IOS number, but you also have to provide um, or, or hire a, a uh, intermediary, which is a third party to facilitate and broker your, your VAT back to the US or back to the EU. So that intermediary is, is an Avalara, for example, right? We can be an intermediary for our clients to provide that IOS benefits. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but our phones started ringing off the hooks. Effective July 1, um, what brands started to recognize is that they were already breaking the new tax law, meaning they were continuing to sell into these countries all over the world, uh, but they did not have the processes in place to effectively collect and remit taxes like they need to be. And I'm sure that you guys are seeing the same exact thing uh, based on that yeah, it's been a it's been a wild year, Jason. You know, our phones were have been ringing off the hook since December 31st for Brexit. And then that Brexit, you know, volume was was just absolutely tremendous. And then this new EU, it has just been um, mind blowing and, and really great for for uh, Avalara, at least watching the the ways that bringing it's bringing cross-border commerce to light right it is showing that and it is showing that um, governments are really taking a focus on these low value e-commerce goods and it, what you can really truly <laughs> i believe at the bottom of my heart is that this is just the tip of the iceberg right i mean it where if you're seeing a top five market like the uk now the eu you can just expect other countries to follow suit and start putting more scrutiny on these lower value e-commerce cross-border shipments. Exactly, exactly. Well, this, is, uh, this has been fantastic. Hopefully we did a good job of educating the market on a little bit more or demystified some of the complexities around cross-border. And what I really wanted to accomplish on today's conversation is one that, you know, Avalara is this world-class tax as a service provider is really one that does a lot more than that. It's really, it's about, as you described it, let me go back in my notes, anything related to global compliance. And I just want to make sure that we have that opportunity to really describe that to, to the listeners of our podcast. One of the things we ask everybody, especially people who are such deep experts on certain topics, is how do you stay abreast of all of the, the, the changes and who influences you? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and a lot of it drives from my team, right? I have a incredible team over here at Avalara. We have um, built a world class research and development uh, compliance department. You know, just to put it to scale, we have over four hundred people now that are just simply in our content research, content engineering department, which all they do all day long is research rates, rules, jurisdictional boundaries, tariff changes, de minimis changes. I mean, the list goes on and on, Jason. So it is incredible uh, what these people do. And then taking all of those changes and then consolidating them into one, you know, global compliance platform that you can ping, you know, and what I always like to um, tell people who will listen, right, is you've used Avalara without even knowing it, 
if you've ever transacted and bought anything online in the past 10 years, you've used our platform um, unknowingly because that is us in the background calculating tax and, and compliance to present on brands websites. I like it. You're the, uh, the plumbing of the internet in a lot of ways. Yeah, we like to think so. We like to think we're uh, the, the ADP of sales tax. You know, right you're, you're going to yeah. outsource it in one way or shape or another, and, and we're here to help. Fantastic. Uh, a little bit lighter topic, uh, other than tax, is you know, podcasts have exploded during the pandemic. Are there any that you listen to, either professionally or because it's fun, uh, that you'd want to share? Any recommendations? Um, I think I do listen to a, a cross-border um, tax technology podcast that KPMG does. I think they do a, a pretty good one. Uh, personally, I like listening to group chat and some of the others that keep it a little more real-world uh, business-minded podcast. But you know, I think it's the era of podcasts is, is amazing because you get to listen to. Um, truly inspirational and innovative people, you know, present their ideas and it's consumable in, in an hour's time. You don't have to go to these trade shows and, and listen to, you know, and get in line and listen to people talk anymore. It's really just at your fingertips. And I think that is uh, really great to, to increase innovation and, and get the word out. Yep. Democratize some of the conversations. Totally. We, um, the last thing I'll leave this conversation with is if people want to get a hold of you and have a conversation either about tax, cross border, or, or anything we've covered here today, what do you, what is the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, LinkedIn, LinkedIn works great. Um, you can email, call me. Uh, you know, we have a really great team built out around cross border commerce at Avalara, and it is just growing exponentially. So we'd love to. You know, welcome the conversation. We work with a ton of different brands and and use cases across many industries, so we're very familiar with a, a, a wide uh, range of use cases. And I would say that we'd love we'd welcome the conversation. And there's Fantastic. easy ways to get a hold of us. Fantastic. Uh, well, this is uh, this is a wrap. I want to thank Evan Wright for joining us today on Commerce Connect and thank his employer, Avalar, for being a partner of Digital River. Thank you very much and have a great rest of your day. Thanks for having me, Jason. You've been listening to the Commerce Connect podcast brought to you by Digital River and edited at Matriarch Digital Media in Minneapolis, Minnesota. To learn more, head to DigitalRiver.com.